0: Alright, we've been uh, working on a series here called You Asked For It, and uh, all of these messages we've done in this series have been uh, requested by at least people who have been to the Junction Church, or at least people who threw stuff in the basket we had, and this will be the the fifth message in the series, and so we've had uh, a number of different topics, we had a couple on singleness, we had a uh, topic on betrayal, recovering from betrayal. Last week we talked uh, about a question on the end times and Jesus being our hope. And, and this week we got a question on being gay and Christian. And uh, I tell you in the series there's some easy questions and there are some that are not so easy. So it's more on the not so easy one. Uh, but I said, hey, whatever you throw in there, we're going to talk about. It. So, And if you're used to coming to this church, you know that we don't shy away from difficult discussions because... When you shy away from difficult discussions, it pretty much drives discussions underground, and that's not usually very helpful in the end. And so, uh, let's uh, let's just begin. Uh, God, we just ask for your Holy Spirit to just be upon us in this time. God, we pray you would just lead this, and um, yeah, you just do whatever you want to do in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. (laughs) So here is the... uh, Specific question. Uh, Question is, how can someone who is in a gay relationship say they are a committed Christian? Doesn't the Bible condemn homosexuality? And so it seems maybe from this question, someone is, you know, maybe knows somebody or read about someone maybe who is gay and in a a gay relationship, maybe married, and yet they say they're a committed Christian. Uh, How can they say they're a committed Christian? Doesn't the Bible condemn homosexuality? Well, there's the, the question. for for today. Uh, Before we uh, get into that, let me just do some surface issues here. Within the broad perspective uh, of Christianity across this world, uh, there would be kind of two sort of main categories of Christians. Uh, There would be non-affirming Christians, and there would be affirming Christians, meaning that there are Christians who would not affirm the idea of same-sex marriage, and then there's affirming Christians who would affirm the idea of of a same-sex relationship. But even those two views within Christianity are are far too simple. Uh, Because there are a lot of nuanced views within the wide world of Christianity. Uh, You could kind of nuance it maybe into four positions. There would be within the world of Christianity uh, what might be called the excluding position. And these people, though they may not say this, would would, uh, basically present this in terms of uh, they hate the sin and hate the sinner. And this would be sort of the infamous Westboro Baptist Church. You've probably seen them in the news of places, holding up signs that are really horrible. Uh, they'd be kind of the excluding category. Uh, then you'd have what you might call the non-affirming category. And this is that, that famous saying, hate the sin, love the sinner. Although there are, of course, some in that category who use that phrase, but actually uh, are in the excluding category. Because there's theology, by the way is not what you say your theology is what you live and there are a lot of people who go around say you know hate the sin love the sinner but actually by their actions and deeds that are actually more hate the sin hate the sinner Uh, so there's excluding there's of course non-affirming which would be sort of more traditional christianity Uh, then you would have another view which is an embracing position and these folks would say i don't agree but I will agree to disagree and therefore welcome and embrace gay people. And so there are some who say, you know, I I don't agree with that lifestyle, uh, but it's not going to stop me from loving you. It's not going to stop me from hanging out with you. It's not going to stop me from uh, even being worshiping together in a church. Uh, They would see this more in the category of, you know, like last week we talked about different views Christians have of end times, but that doesn't keep us from, that doesn't split us apart. And so there are Christians who say, I don't agree with this, but it's not going to split, split. Uh, me from fellowshipping with you or being one with you and then within Christianity, we would have an affirming position and, they, and These Christians would say that gay relationships are equal to heterosexual relationships But even this uh, If you study this issue and I have over the years probably spent hundreds of hours studying this issue because it's a large issue in Christianity uh, You'll find even this is too simple Because if you actually begin to have real conversations that are honest and, and not not judgmental you begin to realize that christians are actually all over the map on this uh there are people who are part way between not affirming and embracing there are people between embracing and affirming there are people who are kind of in between and by the way in this church uh we have all three of these i mean i hope none of you are excluding because if you are in an excluding category i really encourage you to go look at jesus who love people who hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I mean, but we do have a number of people in our church who are not affirming. We have a number of people in our church who are embracing. We have a number of people in our church who are actually affirming. We have some who would identify as LGBT Christians in this church. And you know what's really weird about this church? Really strange about this church? Is we actually get a law. That, uh,. Now we can hang out and have potlucks together and invite each other for dinner and have good conversation around this year because there's one thing, at least I hope we understand in this church, and that our identity is not whether we're, you know, black or white. Our identity is not whether we're male or female or whether you're liberal or conservative or whether you, you know, drive a Ford or a Volkswagen or uh, your identity is not whether you're you're gay or you're straight or uh, whatever it might be, our identity is in Jesus. And so, this is where our unity starts. Our unity starts in the reality of Jesus. And then we have kind of discussions around this issue. And so, uh, realize that this church is a very odd church in, 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 terms, in terms of this. Um, a couple of things I want to talk about before we get into the nuances of this question that I think are important whenever this topic is addressed. First of all, uh, when it comes to homosexuality, the church has not represented Jesus well in this issue. Uh, the church has not represented Jesus well in this issue. Uh, David Kinneman, who is a Barner researcher, said this. In our research, the perception that Christians are against gays and lesbians, not only objecting to their lifestyle, but also harboring irrational fear and unmerited scorn towards them, has reached critical mass. The gay issue has become the big one. The negative image most likely to be intertwined with Christianity's reputation. Outsiders say our hostility towards gays, not just opposition to homosexual politics and behaviors, but disdain for gay individuals, has become virtually synonymous with the Christian faith. And so, uh, people don't see you know, Christianity, well, there's people who kind of disagree, and, or see Christianity, you know, they really love gays, but maybe not agree, they, they see Christians and they just assume that they disdain uh, gay people. It's kind of the perception out there. And this has to do with the reality that the church has not always done well in representing Jesus. And because there, there is this out there, uh, this has resulted in a lot of uh, very, very sad stories. Uh, Lizzie, a few years ago, one of many cases, who was 14, uh, she hung herself because she was afraid of actually... Uh, telling her parents that she was lesbian, afraid of what her church would say. And it's not an isolated story. There's a lot of stories like this because a lot of people who, you know, maybe are struggling with gayness are terrified to say anything in church or to their parents because there's just kind of this thing out there that Christians disdain homosexuals. And this is sad. Um, Reverend uh, Steve here said It is no secret that the negative stance taken by the church and so many individual local churches has a huge distressing impact on large numbers of lesbian, gay, and bisexual people and leaves countless numbers of them living uh, lives of forced secrecy and dishonesty. uh, Because they don't feel safe. Uh, And I hope that in the church people feel safe to talk about their struggles, but a lot of people don't say, I feel safe talking about this struggle. Tragically, it's also common knowledge that the resultant anguish and distress often leads to spiritual, mental, and physical harm, and in the worst of cases, to people making desperate decisions to take their own life. Now, some people will say, "Well, Christianity has nothing to do with people taking their life uh, because the statistics for LGBTQ plus people uh, generally has a higher rate of suicide." I was just the way it is, they say, but actually, studies have shown uh, this for one instance, that lesbian gay students who viewed religion as very important actually had greater odds for recent suicidal thoughts and attempts than lesbian gay individuals who thought religion was less important. And so Christianity and the way we present ourselves in in this issue has actually led to more people having suicidal thoughts, more people thinking about suicide which is crazy when you think about what Jesus said. That a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Or Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That, that, that Jesus is for life. And yet, the way the church has presented itself is actually more on the, the side of Satan, pushing to be people towards death rather than, than life. And so, I mean, the church needs to do better. Uh, in this this issue, generally speaking, the church needs to do better on this issue. Uh, Second thought, before we get to the nitty gritty of this question, uh, is that this, for the vast majority of gays, it is not a choice and their sexual identity is unlikely to change. The scientific consensus is that sexual orientation is not a choice, sexual orientation is stable and unlikely to change for the vast majority of people, and in rare cases it can. But for the vast majority, it's not a choice, nor can they change. Jesse, that's Actually, it's not, yeah. This is, a deba- this is a debated issue. This is a debated issue, for sure. Um, there are about uh, 5% of people who would not fit into the heterosexual category. In other words, 5% would say that they are in the LGBTQ plus category. And if you read stories uh, of people in this category, I mean, the typical story goes like this. And I've heard a lot of these stories, and, uh, and it typically goes like this for, for people growing up in the Christian church. Uh, they're growing up like everybody else. They uh, reach the uh, level of uh, uh, puberty. All of a sudden, they look around at their friends, and uh, if they're a guy, their guy friends are, are checking out the girls. Hey, you know, check out that girl there. Check out that chick there. And... And, but they are wondering, like, why am I not checking out the girls? Uh, they, they seem to find themselves attracted in the same way to, to another guy or, or, or for a, a female who hits puberty. Uh, all her girlfriends are checking out the guys, and, and she looks at herself and says, you know, there must be something wrong with me. Maybe I'll just grow out of this. And so a lot of Christian young people will think that maybe they'll grow out of it, uh, but they find that they're not. And so what they do is they begin to pray really, really hard, and they get people praying for them. And some of these stories can be incredibly difficult to read. The amount of tears that has been shed by young Christian people uh, hoping and praying that somehow God would change them. And yet they don't find themselves being changed. And some of these stories are incredibly sad because God's not changing them. And, and, and then finally they try to get help from the church and the church casts demons out of them or the church begins to pray for them and they still find themselves not being changed. Now again, in rare cases, uh, there are stories of people being changed. Uh, this uh, lengthy article uh, says that there is no good evidence however that sexual orientation can be changed with therapy. Even many therapists sympathetic to the desire of some homosexual people to live homosexual lives have shifted their effort from changing sexual orientation to helping homosexual people live as they prefer under the unchangeable constraint of homosexual orientation. And so, and I realize this is a, is a divisive issue, but in terms of the scientific community, this is kind of what, what they would say. I know there are a lot of Christians who would say otherwise. Uh, Justin Lee, who was heavily involved in, in ministry to gay Christians. He said this, I could share hundreds and hundreds of stories of people who poured their hearts into ex-gay programs, prayer, and other types of therapy, only to discover that neither they nor the others in their programs ever became straight. In fact, um, Alan Chambers, who is who was president of Exodus International for 12 years, which was the largest group ever, uh, where their mission was, we're we gonna take gay people and we're gonna make them straight. and uh, they ended up ended up closing their doors. In fact, I just want to show a real quick, quick clip of uh, just the beginning of an interview with Alan Chambers. You're welcome to watch the whole thing, but uh, here's the the video clip here. I'll need some volume there, Mike. So let's
1: let's talk about this. So first of all, you were for 11 or 12. Or 13 years? What was it? 12 12 years? About 12 12 years. About 12 years, you were the president of Exodus International. So Exodus was the largest ex-gay organization for many, many years. It doesn't exist anymore, but uh, this was an organization that many people believed was making gay people straight. And you were the face of the organization. You were the head of the organization. And... um, during that time i know when when i grew up and i uh realized that i was gay um in my church if you were if you were a christian and you if you were gay and or, or attracted to the same sex and you wanted to stay a christian there was one option and that was you go to exodus right or some exodus-like ministry and the belief was that exodus was was making people straight mm-hmm. But Exodus closed, and you were part of the decision to close Exodus. Um, So I guess the first thing I need to ask for the sake of all those folks out there who, you know, whose parents or uh, whatnot are are encouraging them to go to some kind of ex-gay group anymore is, did Exodus make gay people straight?
2: Exodus did not make gay people straight, no. There was never a time when any one person, organization, therapy, support group, prayer meeting, Made gay people straight, and that, um, you know, that's something that back when I was you were similar ages, you know, the the thing was if you're gay, you know, I, I don't know how much you knew about Exodus, um, as a kid. For me, I didn't know about it until I was 19, and when I found out about it, it was this, well, of course, this is the answer, this is what I've been praying for my whole life, and. My thought was, like everyone else, is I'm going to go there and it's going to be much different. Um, and what we found over the course of many years was while people matured and grew and all sorts of things that happens just in the course of a normal life, people didn't become straight.
0: Now there are stories of uh, Christians, who uh, gay Christians, who have become straight. Again. It does happen, but it's definitely more on the rare side. Uh, one of them is named Elizabeth Woning, and she said this. I did not specifically seek change in my sexuality. Nevertheless, I began experiencing changes in my sexual desire. I became attracted to a man, which was one of the most unexpected and humiliating experiences of my life since I had so fully identified as a lesbian. He and I got married and have had a strong marriage of 13 years thus far And so uh, there are other stories out there, uh, but for the vast majority of cases, um, there seems, no matter how much prayer and, and Christian effort, that there is is no change. Well, we also see, um, and sometimes we'll, we can point to these things, like uh, uh, this was just recently, 200 uh, hundred LGBT men and women are rallying to show the freedom they have found in following Jesus. And it's true that some of these people have, have said they have changed, but, uh, but there's an underlying story here. And that is, uh, for some of these people, it's not that they have actually gone from gay to straight, but what they have gone from is gay to celibate. And if you actually interview, listen to some of the interviews from people from some of these parades. And um, again, you know, there are some rarely who have claimed they have switched, but a lot of them, this is one of the speakers there. He says, it wasn't a gay to straight thing, it was a lost to save thing. Uh, he says, even though I might be tempted every day, I choose Jesus. He's the only man in my life. I choose him over him. And so this is not someone going from from gay to straight, but someone going from gay to to a celibate life. Uh, And also sometimes this idea of it's just some easy change is uh, for some who are bisexual, it is almost an easy change because they're attracted to either sex and they can say, well, I'm not gonna have same-sex relations, but I'm just gonna choose the other version of, of who I am. So this is within the Christian world very debated. Uh, it's not so debated outside the Christian world, but uh, at least from um, what I've seen and the stories that I've read, it is, it is a rare thing. But I encourage you to, get to do your own research on that. So out of this uh, idea, there are basically two kinds of Christians within the gay community. There will be what is called the side A Christians, and there will be the side B Christians. The side A Christians, say, uh, are those who affirm committed gay marriage relationships— Side B Christians are those who view their same-sex attractions as a temptation and strive to live a celibate life. And so those who have prayed and begged God and have had demons cast or whatever it might be, who still in the end have not changed, will end up in either two of these groups. You'll find lots of Christians on side A, lots of Christians on side B. Uh, there are some who would affirm marriages and they would uh, end up perhaps getting married to someone of the same sex. There are side B Christians, who would view still as a sin. I mean, they realize they're not gonna change, but they still see it as a sin, so they choose to live a celibate Christian life. With all that, can take a breath. I know you're freaked out. I'm just as freaked out as you Okay. So the question, back to the question here. Um, the, so the specific question is, How can someone who is in a gay relationship say they are a committed Christian? Doesn't the Bible condemn homosexuality? So it seems like this question is directed at a side a Christian. In other words, a Christian who says, I affirm gay marriages and I myself in a gay marriage. And so it looks like a Christian is looking into this and saying, you know, how can they say they're a committed Christian when the Bible condemns homosexuality as sin? So we're going to try to get into the view is the view of a side A Christian. That's what we're trying to understand because that's where the question is going. How does a side A Christian say they're a committed Christian when the Bible seems to condemn it? And here's where we're going to start is with this. There's this this saying, and this actually used to be a famous bumper sticker actually. Uh, It says, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Uh, what the Bible says, that's what we do. I just follow the Bible. This is, a, this is a simple thing. And so people look at this issue of homosexuality and say, it's just simple. The Bible says it. I believe it. We're just, we're just going to do it. But no Christian fully believes this. There's no Christian that actually fully believes this. Because there are lots of verses and commands in the Bible that we actually don't, we actually don't do. Uh, we can go back to the Old Testament law where it says, do not cut the hair at the side of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Uh, do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. I mean, uh, these are commands in the Bible that we actually don't do. Uh, so we can't just blankly say the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, because there are commands that we don't do. I mean, there are commands, uh, horrible commands in the Old Testament that we obviously don't do. I mean, in Leviticus 21, it says, if a priest's daughter defiles herself, becoming a prostitute, she also defiles her father's holiness. She must be burned to death. I mean, I don't know any Christian in the world today would ever say, well, you know, the Bible says it, I believe it. well, we're just going to burn these people to death. Or Deuteronomy 21. Suppose a man who has a, a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or mother, then all the men in his town must stone him to death. I mean, I, I don't know of any Christian who would ever say, you know, we follow that today. And so we might say, well, it's pretty clear that's, that's from the Old Testament. Uh, We don't follow the Old Testament anymore, and and that's true. Uh, So let's go to the New Testament. You know, there are lots and lots of New Testament commands that we actually don't do. not do 2 Corinthians 13, 12, uh, greet one another with a holy kiss. This is commanded five times in the New Testament. All of us probably sinned walking into this church today because I never got a kiss. (laughs) Right? I mean, I got one for my wife in the morning, but... uh, (laughs) So this, this is commanded five times yet yet we we actually don't listen to this command or first uh, corinthians 11 uh, a man should not wear anything on his head when worshiping sometimes there are people out there who have a cap on and we, we don't come and say you know you're sinning a woman should wear a uh, uh, wear a covering on her head I don't see a, a single woman this morning with a head covering during worship that's a, it's a command in the Bible a women should wear head covering or uh, this command right from Jesus. Now I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You have also washed. Uh, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I mean, this is a command that we should be washing each other's feet. And yeah, we, we don't do this. I mean, there's some churches that have this actually as an ordinance or a tradition, but most churches don't. I mean, this is a command from Jesus that... That we don't do, and so this idea that the Bible says it, I believe it. That settles it. Actually, there's, there's lots of stuff in the Bible that are commands that we don't do. First uh, Timothy chapter two eight, men should pray in every place by lifting up holy hands. Most Christians in Western culture don't pray with their hands lifted up. This is a command. Now, hopefully, men are praying, but they're not always lifting up their hands. Or uh, 1 Timothy chapter two verse nine, women talking about their adornment, their clothes must not be with braided hair or gold, or pearls, or expensive clothing. So if you have a golden wedding ring on this morning, you're in big trouble. If you have braided hair, uh, you're disobeying the New Testament. Uh, If you have any clothes that are expensive, which we probably, most of us probably have fairly expensive clothes compared to most of this world, I mean, this is a command. Or uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Women should remain silent during the church meetings. It's not proper for them to speak. Ah, uh, you descend, Leslie. <laughs> no! <laughs> uh, there's a lot of teaching in the Bible that are uh, direct commands towards slaves. Uh, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, or slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. I mean, there are lots of Christian ministries in this world that are going to free modern-day slaves. And you would never say to those slaves caught up in sex slavery or whatever, child slavery, to say, you know, you should just really obey your master, even though they beat you and they, they rape you because they're harsh, you should just obey them. I mean, there are lots of commands in the New Testament that we don't do. And wherever you are in this position, this is something you've got to be honest about. That nobody fully says, the Bible says it, you know, I believe it, that settles it. Now, why? And this is the question. Why don't we do and follow these commands? Because they're commanded in the New Testament. Why is it that we as Christians and fairly universal across the world don't follow all these commands? Well, this comes down to sort of the science of interpretation. And there's a fancy word for it. It's called hermeneutics. Where we look at the Bible and we ask questions of the text. So we ask questions like this. What was going on in the culture when this text was written? I'll greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, that's how they greeted each other. And so we, through hermeneutics and our interpretation, would say, well, that's not binding on Christians today, but we are to greet one another. So we greet each other with a hug, we greet each other with a handshake. Uh, So another question we can ask is, does this text capture God's timeless will and heart, or was it cultural? So we'll look at the text commanding, you know, slaves to stay with their masters, even if they're harsh. We would say that that is not a picture of God's timeless will. The God was at work in that culture, bringing the culture out of that and bringing that culture forward. Again, this is the idea of hermeneutics, interpretation. Uh, we can ask the question, what did the text mean to the author and those who first heard it? And this is where, so we're understanding this question, back to this question, because the answer is, how can a gay Christian who is in a marriage, how can they say they're a committed Christian? The reason is, is because those people in that category are asking this question. And they come up with a different answer than other Christians on this issue. So they would say, what did the text mean to the author and to those who first heard it? Or we can look at it this way, another um, uh, saying within hermeneutics or Bible interpretation, that is this, the primary meaning of a text is what the author intended the original audience to understand. In other words, the Bible wasn't written last year. The Bible was written like 2,000 years ago which is a really, really long time. Let's think about a hundred years ago, what didn't exist? We're talking 2000 years ago. So when we do hermeneutics, we're always asking the question, not how do we see it today in our culture? How do we view words in our culture? We ask the question, how did people see it and understand it in the first century? Because that's whom the Bible was primarily written to back in that day. So those people who are side A Christians would say, that those, uh, the idea of homosexuality in the Bible was different than what we see, see today. And they would say um, that in the ancient world, same-sex behavior was primarily between adult males and young boys, had ritual, temple prostitution, where you would go to one of the temples and you would have same-sex relationships if, if that was you know, the person on duty in order to worship a god. It was common between masters and slaves, and also males and eunuchs, those people who had been castrated and kind of stayed youth, youthish, even though they, they were adults. That this was, and it doesn't matter if you're affirming or non-affirming or where you are on this, that scholars generally believe this that this was the primary expression of same-sex behavior in and around the time when the Bible was written. So the debate lies in whether, society Christians would say that this is what was meant when the Bible condemns homosexuality, and therefore the Bible's not condemning modern uh, same-sex marriages, which are committed, lifelong, full of love and faithfulness, that that's not what they were talking about. Those who would disagree would say, well, it kinda relates, and it would, should include same-sex marriages, and that's where the debate lies. And, and I think, that again, this is all, all um, difficult, but my opinion, at least, is this. The debate is not over the authority of the Bible. And I know a lot of people would say, well, people are watering down the word, or they're becoming liberal, or this is... I don't think this is... is for the most cases, is not a debate over the authority of the Bible. Because if you really read and study the viewpoint of Sinai Christians, you realize that these are people who love the Bible. And love God's word, and are very committed to Jesus. Uh, there are brilliant scholars who love the Bible and love Jesus on both sides of this issue. It's not an issue about the authority of the Bible, but it is an issue of the meaning of the text, what the original author intended, and how the original audience understood it. And so I would stay away, no matter what side you are on, of this idea that somehow they're getting away from the authority of the Bible, or they're watering it down, or they're just becoming liberal. It really is an issue of hermeneutics. How do you see the interpretation of the Bible and these passages? And for some of you, you may not have ever been exposed to how a side Christian sees these texts. And, and because that is the specific question, is how, how can that, a person in a gay marriage, how can they um, be a committed Christian? And so the question is, like, how do people see this text? And I did a message a few months ago similar to this where I looked at both views, some of you may remember that, and debated the two views back and forth. And so some of this will be covering some of that again. Uh, But in the Bible, there are basically six big passages that speak about same-sex relations, and one that is also brought in as well. And I don't know how much time we have, but uh, we'll motor through these, so if I talk fast. Um, The first one is from Genesis 19. And this is where the two angels arrive at Sodom in the evening, and, uh, and these, these men, these angels were, you know, human, uh, at least arrived and looked human, like human men, Before they had gone to bed. All the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old surrounded the house. They called to lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. So there's these two men, angels in the house, all the men of the town came around and demanded to have sex which would have been same-sex relations with these, these two men. And so, uh, those who are not affirming would say, well, this is, this, this is horrible, this is, a, this is a condemnation of same-sex relations. Uh, those who are not affirming would say, uh, who are affirming, sorry, they would say, this is not about same-sex attraction, but about gang rape, for the purpose of humiliation and power. Again, we might see this in our culture as a bunch of men wanting to have sex with these other two men, But again, you you guys got to ask what was going on in the culture, how did people see it? And back in those days, I mean, this idea of heterosexual men raping other men often had to do with humiliation and a sign of power. We are the conquerors. We are better than you. We are going to humiliate you by doing this horrible act. And this was a desire for gang rape. And, And really, it shouldn't matter if this was about the women of the town trying to rape two men. Or men of the town trying to rape two men, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, this should be condemned. Because there's no Christian that agrees with gang rape. Ezekiel actually talks about the sin of Sodom. And by the way, you know the word sodomy? In our culture, we often see that as homosexual. You know, for a a lot of history, like even the 1700s, if you had sex in your marriage that was not procreative, you were a sodomite. So probably a lot of us here are sodomites in terms of how that word has been historically used. Um, because for a long time the church said if it's not sex just for babies within marriage, it's still horrible and awful and and a bad thing. Ezekiel says this, that this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. And so Prophet Ezekiel saying the real sin of Sodom was that they didn't care for the poor and for the needy. And so that's how a side A Christian would would look at this text. Uh, Another two texts that are used... Uh, you'll see these commonly used sometimes on signs and and, and anti-gay protests. Uh, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Or Leviticus 20. If a a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Which is interesting because a lot of people like the first half of the verse, but then they disobey the second half of the verse. Homosexuality is an abortion, and I obey God's word, but they're not killing homosexuals. So, um, the non-affirming side would say, no, uh, this is clearly saying that homosexual activity is abomination. The non-affirming side would, would note a few things. Uh, first of all, they would point to maybe a picture like this. Shrimp wrap ba- bacon. I don't know if it makes you hungry. But if someone came out here with some shrimp wrap bacon, I mean, would you take some? No. But I, would, I would at least take the bacon and leave the shrimp and give it to my wife, because I don't like shrimp. <laughs> But do you know to eat this, according to the Bible, is an abomination.
1: Yes.
0: Uh, in Deuteronomy 13, you shall not eat any abomination, including the pig. All of what are in the waters. Whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat, which includes pork chop and, and bacon, all those yummy things. And please, I think they're yummy. I know some of you are not into meat. But, uh, or shrimp, prawns, lobster, clam, oyster. Uh, but in the Old Testament, these are called an Abomination. Which is interesting because in Acts 10, God actually shows up and says, "Actually, these things are okay to eat." And so there's this discontinuity between, again, between the old and the new. And so uh, those who would be affirming would say uh, that we can't press this abomination thing because we're not even consistent with it in the first place. And plus, they would just say that you know, we're not under the old covenant; we're under the new covenant. And so those texts—I mean, I mean—those don't play big. They're not big in this whole debate. But the New, Te- New Testament texts are. Uh, this is where the really debate lies between, between the two views. Romans chapter 1 has the longest passage speaking about same-sex relations. And it says this. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human uh, beings, beings, I should say, and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is praised forever. So it seems like this is talking about people who are really rebelling against God and have no interest in following God. And so God sort of talks about turning them over. And then it says, uh, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lusts for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And so the non-affirming Christians would say, this is pretty clear. I mean, it seems that God is condemning these people and that the same-sex relations are really not, not a good thing. So how does, because again, the question is, how does that side A Christian say they're committed to the Bible with a, with a passage like this? Again, this has, it's not as with the authority of the Bible, but they would interpret this passage differently. First of all, they would say that this passage is speaking about those who have turned their hearts against God, not gay Christians who love and serve God. And so they point to Romans one. It says they never glorified him nor gave thanks to him. They worshiped and served uh, created things rather than the Creator. This whole passage is about people who have rebelled against God and are uh, hating God. And and so they would look at someone, uh, a gay Christian, who loves the Bible, who loves Jesus, who who worships passionately, and say that this is not what the Bible, this passage is talking about. It's talking about those who are rebelling, not those who are loving God. They would also point out that this passage is speaking about sexual excess and sinful lusts, not loving, committed relationships. And they would say that you could even put a heterosexual relationship in this list instead of a homosexual relationship, and it would it'd still be as bad because it talks about shameful lusts. And people being inflamed with lust for one another, men committing shameful acts, and that could happen in heterosexual or same-sex uh, relationships. And so... That is how someone uh, from the affirming group would see, see that passage. Uh, their main point would be this, that the, the cultural context of Romans chapter one is not our modern day idea of committed, loving, lifelong, same-sex relationships. They would say that when the original author wrote this and the original hearers heard this, they were not thinking about you know loving, lifelong relationships, but primarily were thinking about Adult males and young boys, ritual temporal prostitution, masters and slaves, males and eunuchs. And so uh, those who would be affirming would say that this passage doesn't apply to the modern relationships and and how they look. Uh, The other two passages in the New Testament are these. Um, And this is kind of at the heart of the debate here because in our modern translations it seems quite clear. But by the way, you know the word homosexuality or homosexual didn't even come into our translations until 1946. It says in 1 Timothy 6, 9, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or who commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality. And it goes on to talk about things that we all do, like greed and those kinds of things. They're all on that list. But in this list is this idea of practicing homosexuality. First uh, Timothy chapter 1, 9 says we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave trainers and liars. And so again, we see this in our modern translations, this this word practicing homosexuality. And so this is where probably this question is coming from. I would just imagine that, well, it seems clear. And the Bible says clearly, Practicing homosexuality leads to not being able to inherit the kingdom of God. So how in the world can someone who practices homosexuality in a committed marriage ever say they're a committed Christian? Well, again, uh, this is an issue of interpretation. Uh, they would interpret these words differently than our very modern translations uh, interpret them. And, and this is, man, I'll tell you, you read about this, it's such a crazy debate they it's just really confusing, and it's, just, it's rather endless. Uh, but the, the, the debate is over these words. What do these words really mean? Uh, the affirming side would say they don't mean these things. The non-affirming side would say they do mean these things. And it has to do with these words, the Greek words malakoi and arsenokotai. Now, um, both affirming and non-affirming would, would agree with this point. That the word Malakoi is not a technical term meaning homosexuals. No such term existed either in Greek or in Hebrew. The word Arsenechotai is not found in any existent Greek text earlier than 1 Corinthians. And it doesn't matter if you're affirming or not affirming, both would agree that it seems that Paul made up this word, arsenicotai. It's never seen before that. It's seen actually very rarely after that, up until about the the 6th century, and so the debate is, well, what in the world do these words actually mean? And translators have to pick something to stick in our English version. And so the debate is over what do these words mean? And I'll just give you just a little hint at the debate, because I would encourage you to do your own study on, on this issue. Uh, here would be a, um, a, a non-affirming to theologian. He would say that malachoy refers to <laughs> passive male prostitutes, to the effeminate, heterosexual, or homosexual males. Then arsenakotai refers to the man who lives with the male who has homosexual intercourse with him. Or another uh, um, scholar who would take a non, non-affirming approach, he would say arsenakotai is a translation of the Hebrew uh, lines of the male derived directly from Leviticus, Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 and used in rabbinic texts to refer to homosexual intercourse. So some people theorize that maybe that word came from some sort of derivative of the the Levitical passages. But on the other hand, there are brilliant scholars who love Jesus, love the Bible, who are so faithful, who don't agree that this is the right translation. Um, And here's just just sort of the other side to the issue. Uh, this one says, Malachi implies excess or lack of self-control, which could apply to heterosexuals, to uh, too interested in having sex with women, to adulterers, and also to males who used other males. Arcelicotai probably referred to the, the pederast who disgraced boys by penetrating them, although it could also refer to any male who engages in unjust, violent sexual behavior. Uh, this professor of New Testament said, Malachi could include the men uh, the man who was viewed as not being adequately manly to the more passive homosexual partner, frequently a boy and sometimes a slave, and also for those boys who solicited sex for their elders for pay. Then Arsakotai referred to the more active or older male, often heterosexual and married, who kept a boy for his pleasure. So he would say that these are what those, those Greek words mean. Uh, another theologian who has uh, written extensively on uh, on this said, uh, Arsagotai did not always speak of sexual misconduct, but often included an ancient vice list with sins of ex- economic exploitation." In fact, we see the first appearance of the word is in Paul, and the next appearance of these words are always in relation to ec- ec- economic sins. And so, um, and that's that's what she would say <laughs> here. Of course, if the ideas of sexual sin and economic exploitation are combined, we find ourselves faced, once again, with the sexual use of enslaved persons and prostitutes. Other factors in 1st 1 Timothy 1.10 may also support the idea that sexual slavery was the target of the apostles' exhortation since kidnappers, sometimes translated slave traders, is listed right after arson and Or another scholar. Uh, here's a scholar a New Testament translator. Do the, the word Malachi is either soft and any number of opprobrious senses, self-indulgent, dainty, cowardly, luxuriant, moral, or physically weak or gentle, uh, gentle, and the various largely benign senses, delicate, mild, congenial. Some translators of the New Testament take it here to mean the passive partner in the male homoerotic acts, but that is un- an unwarranted supposition. Or the word arsenicotai, he says, is long been a matter of speculation and argument. And it would not mean homosexual in the modern sense of a person of a specific erotic disposition for the simple reason that the ancient world possessed no comparable concept of a specifically homoerotic sexual identity. In the first century, the most common and readily available form of male homoerotic sexual activity was a master's or patron's exploitation of young male slaves. and so. I mean, not, it's, just, it's just debated. And so those on the affirming side would say, I mean, because these words are debated, how can those who are non-affirming, because the word is debated, how can they say to a entire group of population of people, sorry, you can't be in, in a lifelong close relationship with somebody based on the, on, on the difficulties of these words. But of course, the non-affirming to say is clear, affirming to say is clear on their side, and welcome to the world of lots of disagreement and lots of issues within, Christianity. And uh, for the sake of time, we're going to maybe just jump over this one. Um, So, if you want to study this issue, because I highly encourage you to study this issue on all sides, because this is a a real issue. And it's a real issue for young people. Um, Some older folk in here, you may have no association with, with, with gay people in your world. You may not know anybody who is gay and married. But I tell you, young people. They have friends, and they know people who are in this category. And so when the church comes across sometime as presenting a disdain for homosexual, and these are evil, awful people, and then these young people are, like, hanging hey, out with know, their gay friends, like, this person's super loving and awesome and amazing, and they have a great marriage, there's this disconnect. This is a huge issue with young people. And so if you want to engage honestly in this issue then it means you honestly need to to look at at both sides. And I've read lots of books on both sides of uh, this debate, and here's just a couple I would recommend. Uh, This would be from more of the sort of the embracing or the the non-affirming side. Uh, Preston Sprinkle Sprinkle wrote a book called uh, People to be Loved, Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue. Wesley Hill, who was actually a gay Christian himself, who is a side b gay christian who has chosen to live a celibate life because he would see the act as sinful but he's still a christian and gay and has never been able to change he wrote a book called washed and waiting uh, if you want to look on the affirming side uh, a couple popular books out there uh, one is by justin lee he also has a youtube channel that's quite uh, a lot of good stuff on it he wrote a book called torn rescuing the gospel from the gay versus christians debate Matthew Ryan, uh, Vines wrote um, a book that's been quite popular called God and the Gay Christian. And so that would be from the affirming side. If you want to, if you like scholarly, in-depth, complicated dissection of Greek words, then this is the book for you. Um, I made my way through this one. And, and you're going to see that this is a real debate among scholars who love Jesus and love the Bible. And so this is a debate, back and forth, back and forth, of the affirming and non-affirming views of homosexuality in the church. If you're not a reader and wanna check out YouTube, then uh, you may check out, and maybe we'll post these when this video goes up on the description so you can find them easier. But if you wanna look at something from the non-affirming side, you can look at Homosexuality, a Christian View by Dr. Wesley Hill. Uh, Dr. Michael Brown is another one who would be, often speak on this issue from the non-affirming side. From the affirming and non-affirming, if you wanna see good discussion between the two, you can uh, check out this one, How Do We Love? A Thoughtful Dialogue on Sexual Differences. If you want to look at something from the affirming side, uh, you can look at um, a, a video called The Bible and Homosexuality, A Nuanced Approach. Or this one by Kathy Bulla, Bulldot. And I would highly encourage this one, no matter what view you're from, because she does a really good job, and now, granted, she's coming from an, an affirming view, but she does a really good job of tracing sexuality, and specifically homosexuality, and the translation of the Bible, and how it's been, the words have been all over the place throughout history, and there's about a, a two-hour seminar if you want to check that out on on YouTube. Uh, but in the end, no matter what viewpoint you come on, again, um, because I'm a pastor here and I know a lot of you, I know that there are people in, in, in every category here, and, and hold it affirming, non-affirming, and welcoming, and embracing positions, um, that whatever our discussions are, they need to be done in love. And Galatians 5, 6 says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And so if in your conversations they're not loving, and they're not listening, and not trying to understand, then you're missing something. 1 Corinthians 13 says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, And if I had such a faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. And maybe you're even settled in your view, but if your view doesn't come across as loving, you've gained nothing. And if our discussions aren't loving, we've gained nothing. And so love is what must, must lead. And then I go back to this idea that our identity is not in what our opinions are on the subject. Um, our identity is in Jesus. It is in Jesus. In Him we live and move and have our being. Again, our primary identity is not whether we're gay or straight or male or female or. You know, have this view or that view or drive whatever kind of car or whatever end times view you have, whatever view you have on the baptism of the Holy Spirit or whatever view you have on tongues or all those other issues Our identities of Jesus, which means that we can get along and we can have good conversations and we can embrace each other because um, at least I've talked about this a lot here and if you know me as a pastor, I take this verse very, very seriously. One of the most serious verses in in the Bible, I think. And this is Jesus when he says, I have given them the glory you gave me. (laughs) That Jesus gives us the glory that God gave him. Why did God give us this glory? He says, so they may be one as we are one. I in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me that this unity within the Christian church is to be so powerful that the world says, there's something different there. Yeah. I tell you, this, this, this topic is so divisive in the world and so divisive in the church, but I don't think it has to be. I don't know some of you would disagree on that, but I don't think it has to be because our identity is in Christ. And in a world uh, that, is, that is so divided, and, and you know what? The reality is we've been doing it already. There are a lot of you here are affirming, and I know that, and there are a lot of you who are not affirming, and I know that, and we actually get along and hang out and have meals together, and we're doing this, and, and that should hopefully catch the attention of, like, there's something different going on at the Junction Church, because most of this just kind of blows everybody up, but it's because, because we're attracted to Jesus, and we love Jesus, and so I'd encourage you, continue to have those great conversations with each other, get up on this issue, read stuff, study this, and, uh, and uh, because it's not going away, it's only growing. And, um, and I guess I'm just going to park it there. Hi, uh, God. I know that was a stressful topic for, for me and probably for a lot of people here. Uh, and, God, uh, we just pray your grace all over this. God, we thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you for the diversity in the body of Christ. That there are people who love Jesus and love you and love your word on, on all different Perspectives and nuances on this subject. And, and God, we pray that you would just continually to help us place our identity in you. You are, God, the one who we look to. You are the one who changes us. You are the one who grows us. You are the one who gives us love and shapes us and gives us forgiveness and power and all those things. So, God, we we just as a church say we love you, Jesus, and we look to you, and, um, and we just bless this church, God, with unity.